Peter had told him that they had worked hard all night and caught nothing. The Lord wanted Peter to put his nets out into deep water. Go out again. It's hard work. They're out all night. They're disappointed. They caught nothing. They've worked hard. They're exhausted, obviously, but at some level, because Peter calls him master here. The only place this is recorded in Luke chapter 5. Peter calls him master. It means something. So at some level, moved by the authority of this man that Peter had not yet come to know at all, Peter reluctantly pulled out. He said, go to the deep water. So they've got to go out, half mile, maybe a mile. Their arms are bereft of energy, pulling on the oars. They've been pulling on all night. It's cold morning air, stiff fingers that are frayed and tired, cold on those wet wooden oars. They rowed until they came to the depths of the Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. And with a high level of doubt mingled with the thoughts of, God, I'd love to be in my warm bed at home right now, they let down their nets. And you know the rest, right? This, uh, the nets are so full that they're bursting and they, have to, they can't even pull them into the boat. They have to call over to their partners. Uh, little did they know many of those in that team would become disciples and apostles. And, uh, <clears throat> and so the boat's filled. And what do you think happened to their energy level once that happened? And just in that moment, their mental attitude is changed. The very chemical composition of the muscles in their arms are changed. What happened to these men? Luke records it as Peter saying, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. He was awestruck by the number of fish that they were caught that they caught, as were the others with him. <clears throat> his partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he didn't know that they'd be his partners for life, were also amazed. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. You know, it, in the gospel narrative, things have got to move along swiftly enough that you can record it all. <clears throat> I wouldn't imagine that Peter, that very moment, said, See you later, honey. As he is his wife, he's married. I'm following this guy that I just met who filled my boat with fish. I'm sure a little bit of time went by. But as it's recorded, it's immediate in Peter's mind. And then James and John, that they leave. So notice the picture. They've gone from exhausted, pretty disappointed people to energetic and alive people, but they're in another line of work now. And Jesus didn't say to them, well, you know, I know you've been out all night. Take it easy. No, I'm, I've got work for you to do. And it's a different kind of work. And it's going to take everything you've got, pretty much. And that's what we're looking at today. 
As we move to the end, the close of Second Thessalonians, we see that there's an issue in Thessalonica with people who are Christians who are doing nothing. They're not working. They're not contributing. And they want to reap the benefits of the church without contributing to the church. And Paul sees a problem here, which it was. And he's going to address it. And he's going to tell them how to deal with it. And he's also going to encourage them, as God would have him encourage us now, to be the kind of worker that the Father would be pleased with. Uh, the Father has a lot of work for us to do. And um, we've got to have the energy to do it. We've got to have the joy in it. We can't get burned out by it. There's a lot of Christians out there, I think, I don't know how many when I say a lot, but there's some out there who are working hard and want everybody to know it. And they're more of a pain in the butt than they are of any help. So we've got to avoid being burnt out, but we can't go the other side and do nothing. There's work for us to do. We've got to find joy in the work, just like our Lord did. That's what we'll be looking at this, actually, all week. Um, <clears throat> before we sing, announcement-wise, we have a Bible study coming up on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. Uh, we'll start around 4.30-ish. doesn't have to be exact time. Uh, I am going to film it, though I found out uh, that I don't actually have to film it. But I think it would be fun to do it anyway, uh, to film it, I mean. And uh, we'll, about a half an hour or so, if you can make it. If you run it a little late, don't worry about it. Let me know. Get in contact with me, and, and we'll wait for you. So uh, we're going to be studying or talking about Psalm 19 uh, this Wednesday at 4.30. All right, let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our time. Let's thank God for our, His Word and all that He does for us. Which is, we should always be so grateful for what we're about to learn and the fact that we can rejoice in it and just be grateful for our God and our Savior. And so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for all you do. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word and that we are forgiven. We thank you, Father, that though we're sinners and have a track record not too great, and that we have made mistakes and fallen, and we will do so in the future, that we know, Father, that we're forgiven by you through the blood of Christ through his sacrifice. And as we look this week to the work that you have us to do, let us not be discouraged by anything that we've done in the past. <clears throat> or let us not listen to our flesh or the world who has another idea of what work is. But let us look to you, Father, for you are the one who has given us the work to do, just like you did to your son when he was here. And so, Father, thank you for your revelation. Thank you for the Spirit within, which makes your revelation clear. And also through him, which gives us the energy and the power to do what you have called us to do. And what a wonderful life it is. May we see it as that, not listen to the lies that are out there and that are in here. I don't mean the church and our own souls from our sin nature, of which tell us that there's another way. There is no other way. So we ask, Father, for your clarity 
and your love and your guidance. Through your word, in Christ's name, amen. All right.
All right, we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So as I open, Jesus said to Peter, significantly, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Like, what would Peter fear? And what he would fear, what he says is, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to be in the same place as you are. And, you know, there's a fear in that. So, because I'm a basically a failure at life, that's what a sinner is. It's a good definition. Um, this work, this work that the God the Father wants me to do, how in the world am I supposed to live up to that? But Jesus says confidently, I am going to make you a fisher of people and you're going to follow me. So let's go and let's get to work. But I'm not worthy. Well, no, you're not. You're a sinner. But don't be afraid to do the work that the Father has sent you to do. If he sent you to do it, count it as a privilege. See it as an opportunity and not as a burden. And that's one of the keys to this last section in Thessalonians. Work hard for the right result. And you and I both know, all of us in this room are old enough to know, that working hard for the right result, even if you don't get the result you wanted, is one of the most fulfilling things in the world. The fact that you can come to an end of a day and say, I worked what I was supposed to do. I wasn't lazy. This week we'll have some fun. I love the lazy, the, uh, the Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, the uh, slothful, <laughs> there's a few of them. As uh, Solomon writes, don't be that hinge turning in your bed, creaking one way and creaking the other. Um, and so, you know, why is that? Why is it that we're so fulfilled when we do and work hard for the right thing. I mean, it's one thing if we do the right thing or accomplish the right thing and it's easy. But there's another thing when we do it and it was hard. And we overcame. There were things in the way and we overcame. There were things that stopped us. And it wasn't so much that we're so proud of ourselves because in that you get self-absorbed and you lose it. You lose the joy in it. But it's that... I knew what I had to do and I wanted to do it so badly and I wanted to do it so well that when the obstacles came, I pushed them out of the way. In other words, my heart was set on this and my heart was right, the thing was right, and the power was right. And therefore, you know, no matter how it works out, because sometimes, as we saw last week, that's the beauty of the book of Ecclesiastes, That when you thought life was going to happen, death happened. When you thought death was going to happen, life happened. When you thought it was time for embracing, it was time for shunning. And it's not up to you to know the result. And that should be fine with us. It has to be. Because none of us control that. Only God does. And as Solomon discovered in all his wisdom, life can be pretty frustrating. The advancing church faces pressure and had, here we see it, 
right? This we assume this this we know this is the first of Paul's letters in the New Testament. We know it. Uh, what we don't know is the exact date, but we can guess pretty accurately somewhere in the 40s, probably mid 40s to early 40s. So the church is only 10 years old. And but even beyond that, uh, earlier than that, we have not the we have the history of the church from Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. And in that history, we can see that immediately there's pressure upon the church, like immediately. There's conflict. And it's not just from without, as we see here, it's from within. Because as we say, the number one problem with the church is people. And each of us, knowing we are new creations and dwelt by the Spirit, we must find the drive, the gumption, drive, will, and the fun, the joy of doing the Father's work. We have to find this. And that, that's a part of the new creature. We're made for this. God is, why is it that we're fulfilled by work? It's because God has made us to work. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that God does not sit around and do nothing. He could have, I guess. But He created. He made man, knowing all the problems that would happen with us and the world. And he did it because why? God works. I don't know all the ins and outs of that because I don't know all of God's mind. But, <clears throat> you know, there's an accomplishment. And we get a, a hint from the scripture as to why God has called us to do this and why it's so fulfilling. It's, not, it's more than a hint, in fact. The advancing church faces pressure, problems, persecution, and tribulation from outside, from the unbeliever. Uh, we've seen that. The unbeliever, why does he persecute the church? Well, or Christians, he's prideful. You probably, with your joy and your peace and your strength, have hurt his pride, him or her. Uh, they're jealous. We saw that. The main reason that they persecuted Paul was that they were jealous of him. Some see Christianity as a scapegoat. You know, we're easy pickings. Well, because we love in return. Right? Well, you know, people will mock Christianity publicly. They won't draw pictures of Muhammad. Why is that? Well, because Muslims come and seek you out to kill you and stab you if you do so. But for Christians, you can make fun of Jesus all day long. We don't retaliate in that way. So we're an easy scapegoat. And often cases, they're directly motivated by Satan. I have to remember that. It's the easy explanation of why did this happen and why did that happen is because Satan hates mankind, hates God, hates Christianity, hates the truth. So, as Jesus told us in John 15, 19, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 1 Peter 4.12, why are we shocked at this? And we often are. Like, why are you behaving in that way? But if we understand, you know, this understanding gives us the ability to respond gently and with wisdom rather than reacting. Reacting, you react in anger or bitterness at someone who has mocked your Lord or mocked you, 
you're, you're, you've lost. Not you, you've lost the ability to speak to them. You don't see Jesus doing that. He speaks to them. He teaches them. At times he got angry, sure. <clears throat> he knew how to do that perfectly. I don't know if any of us know how to do that well or to do it rightly. But you know, we, we have to have uh, our spiritual head on our shoulders if we're going to re- respond to people in a way that teaches them and has any hope of showing them the light of Christ because that's what it's all about. All of us mocked God at some point in our lives. We've all done it. Now, as we know in the Thessalonians, they were first they were facing tremendous persecution from unbelievers. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen. The countrymen that means their neighbors. These are people that they were relatives of, friends to, just months ago, not even. <clears throat> they were fully accepted in these social circles. But now that they're, just because they're Christians, as they have accepted the gospel, and they are now preaching the gospel, and what have they gained? As Paul says in the beginning of this letter, their love has, not only have they seen the love of Christ, it keeps increasing in them. They have love, they have hope, they have endurance. And yet, they're still hated, persecuted, just like Paul was, as he says here, by their own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, meaning the early church in Jerusalem, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So Paul here has the whole, all of us, right? Him, the Lord, Paul, the Lord, all the believers in Jerusalem, and now the believers in Thessalonica were far away from Jerusalem. So location doesn't seem to matter, right? What matters is, is what your faith is in. And then the world is going to persecute. Now, that's from without. We don't get a lot of that in America. What we get in America, which is maybe equally as frustrating, is just complete apathy. People just don't care. Now, these are people that are going to be standing before the Lord Jesus Christ to be judged and to be cast into the lake of fire. And they don't have a care in the world. It's incredible, actually. But that's not when Now, so when Paul ends the, this letter, he's not... Second Thessalonians, he's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers. There's another distraction or problem, and the problem comes from us. The church faces problems of a different kind from believers who are undisciplined and out of order. And I, I use the word out of order because that's the word Paul uses here. Uh, it's translated unruly. <clears throat> we were with some family yesterday, and uh, Chris's family, and they asked me what I was teaching on tomorrow. He's like, you, you know, we were we were down in Eugene, and you know, we have to drive home, and they're like, we better get you home, Joe, because you got to teach class. And I'm like, yeah, I'm teaching about unruly Christians tomorrow. <clears throat> 
And uh, one, one person said, oh, I like unruly Christians. And I was like, Paul doesn't. And uh, what this person meant was that Christians that weren't too uptight, I think, or legalistic. And I'm like, well, at the time I described to you what unruly means here. And what it means is, you know, as this is a, a Greek phalanx. And a phalanx was where they locked shields. And they became the Spartans. Maybe you know the Spartans were like the experts at this. And this became an impenetrable wall. And they'd slowly push forward their spears. They're like seven feet long. I forget how long they are. And they are experts at jamming these things and pushing this wall. And they hold that line. They hold that. It's like a moving tank with a hundred spears poking at you. And uh, that's how they won battles. Now, what's the worst that can happen to a phalanx is that one person falls. And that's why there's rows. Because if a man falls, the man behind him comes up and fills that hole. And it remains impenetrable. And what happens here for us is that someone drops out. In this passage, someone, Paul is putting it, is not doing anything. And they create a hole. Now, it doesn't mean that the, the rest in the church can't fill that hole. They do. It happens all the time. But yet, Paul still sees it as a problem. And it is clear that it's happening in Thessalonica. This church that Paul gave great thanks for, he never thanked anybody as much as he thanked them in these two letters. It might be because he's, I thought about this might be because they're his first letters and maybe he's overly gushing. I don't know. But, um, you know, he thanks them more than anybody. He commends them and commends them. Yet, though they're commended as increasing in love, increasing in faith, increasing in endurance, enduring persecution, sticking with the truth no matter what, and they are. They still have issues within. So look at Second uh, Thessalonians three six. So here here it is. The last we we did uh, last week we did verses one through five, and verses one through five he he prays or his wish is that they would follow the Lord into the love of God. And you see in verse 5, the love of God and the endurance or steadfastness of Christ. And then he says, now we command you, in verse 6, brethren. So let's just read the paragraph and then we'll, we'll be working on this paragraph all week. Um, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And there's that word, unruly. It means out of line, basically. It was used in a military capacity for the guy who dropped out. The unknown soldier is what it means. So, who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. So the contrast is between the unruly believer and Paul in his behavior, which was disciplined. 
Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we didn't have the right to this. This is an amazing thing he says here. It's the law of love, by the way. He says, as apostles, we had the right not to labor night and day. But we did anyway. And why? In order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. You see, this hard work, here's our hint. What is the purpose of all this hard work? And by the way, this is why it's so fulfilling. It's because this, when it's God's work, it's always for others. Right? I, we didn't have to toil and labor night and day because we're, I'm an apostle and my team here, our job is to preach the gospel and we could have just done that and demanded that you do all the work that we did, but we did this to show you how to live. And this is like, this is a leader becoming one of those who are led. Right? This, how many leaders are there? If all preachers, ministers, leaders practice this, uh, it would be amazing. But how many leaders, and sometimes pastors, they stand aloof on a pedestal and they expect to be ministered to, and yet, God forbid, they do anything that you know the congregation would do. I'm not taking out the garbage. I'm the pastor. I'm not washing that cup in the sink. I'm the pastor. I don't do that. It's beneath me, you know. But what is Paul saying? He said, like, there's people there that are not doing anything. And yet, I worked and worked to show them how it's done. So I'm going to show you how it's done. So, like, with, with our phalanx, it's, it's the general getting up there in the front line, holding the spear and saying, come on, guys, I'm going to show you how this is done. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Well, hello, welfare state. Uh, I'm sorry, goodbye, welfare state. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You know what's fun about this word busybody? The word work is ergozomai. Uh, you, you can you're familiar with this ergazo ergo right ergometrics uh, ergometer it's a it ergo means work ergazomai means to work the word for busybody is para ergazomai and it mean, no it, that would be ah ergazomai but para means around right. Para means around. And God, so it means to work around. So as you're working, what you're doing. So the, the, the beauty of this word is that it's not that they're doing absolutely nothing. They're just doing the wrong thing. And they're doing it. Right? It's like someone who's gossiping or being a busybody. They're working. 
but they're not working well. They're not doing the right thing. So, acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them. You see that? So, um, this do not associate with them takes us back to verse 3. Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. So, they're both of the same caliber. This com- and he, Notice he says, we command you. We command you to keep away from them. And if, in verse 14, if they don't obey our instruction, take note, which means that you're to witness and take note of this, and not to associate. So associate means to keep company with. And we'll look at that more specifically in this week to come. Uh, but it does. first off, it does not mean excommunication. All right? So it doesn't mean this word means don't associate. And so Paul, in his way, and he doesn't tell us, I mean, what do we do? Do we call him out? Do we have an intervention? Uh, does the pastor do it? Does the congregation as a whole do it? Uh, do the board of directors do it? You know, how is it done? And God does not, this is a side note that's coming up this week, but God doesn't give us specifics on church administration. And he doesn't, in my opinion, he doesn't do that because he's testing us. He's testing us to see if we'll do it right. If we really want to. Because if we really want to run the church right, the way that God would want it to be run, then we're going to find a way to do it and do it the right way. That works for us, you know. And and that's every single church. Their administration is not going to be the same. So um, it's left to us to fill in, you know, how to do this. So big old jerk who won't do anything? No. (laughs) Thank God for verse 15. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And he's used this word admonish. Already in in the first letter, we'll see that as well. What does it mean to admonish? Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. So, the brethren who are unruly, unruly is a taktas, and a taktas means... I like the illustration. It means to be out of line. It means to be out of order. And so unruly would mean, you know, outside the rule. What is the rule but that what God wants the believer? Now, we know this, these are believers. <clears throat> we may suspect that they're unbelievers that are kind of like hiding out in the church. But if you look again at verse 12, he says, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he going to say that to an unbeliever? No. So this is two believers. We command them. And in the context, is he's talking about these ataktas. Uh, they are out of line, but they are believers. And so they are outside the necessary given order. And this should, for us, make us want to know, if we don't already, you know, what is the order? 
what is, what is it that God wants us to be as saints in the church, in the body of Christ? So, <clears throat> today, again, uh, let me say this. Again, it's a military word that means to act without discipline. Uh, it's the, the necessary order in the case for the believer is your calling in the body of Christ. Now, I would add here that you're going to be judged for it. So, if you say, well, you know, I don't really care about all that. It's not to me or to anybody else that you're going to give an account. It is to the Lord that you're going to give an account in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.10. He's going to judge us for our works and recompense us, whether they were good or bad. And so, it's a fear of the Lord that comes into view here, and that I've got work to do, and it doesn't matter what time of history you're at, where you're at, what member of whatever you call your church, whoever you call your church, I should say, and um, whatever your spiritual gift is, all of that comes into play here, but it's between you and the Lord, you have work to do. I have work to do, and I've got to figure it. We've, we've all got to figure this out. And again, if you don't figure it out, just know that you're going to be judged for it. And But besides that, I'm not of the type that thinks, well, I shouldn't say that, but it's somewhat motivating, I would say, to know that I'm going to be standing before Jesus Christ who's going to judge me according to my works. That's motivating. But also... There's, if I say, well, you know, out of just plain fear, I'm going to do this work, that leads me to think, I think for most people, it's a grudging kind of way, and you miss the love of the work. And it's got to be that here. It's because the, the poster child of this is the Lord, just like with every Christian virtue. And when he did his work, He worked, and he did all the work that the Father had sent him to do. That's how he puts it. I did all the work that you have sent me to do. And I don't, you read the Gospels, do you see any grudgingliness in him? Outside of the Garden of Gethsemane, which kind of hinges on that. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, but... You know, even that, he's like, your will, not mine. Everything I do is your Father, your will. So go to 1 Corinthians 12, 4. A couple passages, then we'll come back here. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. So unruly, again, means to be, just to further expand on the definition of this word, it means an irresponsible attitude towards the work God has given you. I like that. Because what Paul's going to emphasize here is they're doing nothing. But this word is a little broader than that. In Thessalonica, the problem is that people are doing nothing. But it, it might not be. This could be... Um, I don't know, whatever, I I shouldn't say I don't know, I do know, is that it is 
an undisciplined manner towards the work that you have, that God has given you to do. And so you may do some, but, you know, there's this idea, and it's especially an American idea in the modern era, that I need to do the least amount to survive. I've talked to plenty of people, and just yesterday, this is one of my, uh, he's my, I guess my uncle-in-law, if there is such a thing. And he's a contractor, and he's like, he's not the only one to tell me. Other people I've known who've owned businesses have told me in the last few years, it's very hard to get labor. Uh, <clears throat> the other one that I was with yesterday, my cousin-in-law, uh, is you know, works at, the, at a university, a local university, and has a heck of a time finding people to do research. And it's the reason being is they want top salary and they want full benefits. <laughs> like, coming right in, you know, like this work in the mailroom and work your way up attitude. My contractor uncle is, uh, you know, he needs just menial work done and he can't find the people to do it. Everybody wants $100 an hour, you know, to like stack wood or something, you know. And so there's this, uh, and so, you know, if you were starving, like in other words, you hadn't eaten in two days, and you needed to stack this wood to get a piece of bread, boy, you'd be doing it. But it's this this attitude of it, especially post-COVID, that has made people be like, well, you know, I could do the least amount and get by. And it becomes this, and the flesh loves this. And you, we all recognize we have the flesh in us. And so fast forward, we, we look at all those lazy young people and, and some lazy old people too, lazy men and women, all kinds, shapes and colors and genders. Gender meaning two. You know, in our day and age, you have to be careful there. But... Um, you know, but what about us in the church? And that's what Paul is going to get at here, is you and I have work to do. And we, this can bleed into our flesh that we do the least necessary. And you know, will the church still be there if we do the bare minimum? And the answer is, yeah, probably. Probably. In many cases, especially in modern America, that church is still going to be there when you come back next Sunday. Whether you, and you could do absolutely nothing that the Father wanted you to do, but that church, notice what the Father wanted you to do, not the pastor or board of directors or anybody else. What the Father wants you to do, that church is still going to be there. In other words, you're not going to starve. And if we lived in Iran right now, or China, or hiding out somewhere in North Korea, or somewhere in the Middle East, Pakistan, that church is going to be gone. It's not going to exist if we don't do what we're called to do. But here, you know, America is different. And I don't think it's worse. It's just, it's another, it's a different type of temptation than it is to be, say, afraid of getting killed in Pakistan. That it's, you know, afraid of having to work, I guess, here. So look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. This is a 
mighty verse that Paul writes here. That speaking of spiritual gifts, each of us have a gift, each of us have a ministry, and each of us have an effect, which is the effect or the work that God has predestined us to do. But notice he says in verse 7, I put this on the board, because you have a place in the body of Christ, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So this manifestation of this spiritual gift and my ministry somewhere in the body of Christ has a ministry, and as we'll see in different passages here coming up quickly, that it, when we do these things, they're always for others. All right? My work is for your benefit. And that's how I have to, if I start looking at this, like, you know what my work is, basically it's this, and there's a lot of work that goes into it. And if I start thinking to myself, well, this work is for me, to promote me, to promote grace and truth ministries with me, you know, on it. If it when that happens, my work is stale and hard, and it's wrong. And I've known because I've done it. And every pastor's tempted to it. We all fall into it. And it's and it's wrong. And you can tell. It just it doesn't it's not God's. When the work becomes your work, that's when you become the grudging, this is a burden, why don't you notice, and you're more of a pain in the butt than you are a help. But when you see this for what it is, boy, you can't wait to do it. And it lifts, it takes away all of this, God, i got to work for God. <laughs> oh, you know, it's so exhausting. i got to work for these people and they never say thanks. They don't even notice. You're not going to care. Your world, the world of work is going to open up to, it's like a, a farmer. I mean, how how many agricultural analogies does our Lord use in the Gospels as Paul uses them too? That we plant and and the Father prunes. We're one of the branches from the vine. And, you know, whether anybody notices or not, look at that fruit. The fruit of my ministry. Not just a pastor, everybody. The fruit of my ministry unto others, but truly, ultimately, to the glory of Him. He has given me, by my own free will, a manner to participate in, the God, in God's vineyard. He's given me a little plot of land. And he doesn't even say, plant your own seed. The Lord Jesus is your seed. He's your vine. And the Father says, on your little plot of land, in my enormous vineyard, grow. Grow fruit. And there's only, there's only one kind of fruit that we grow here. And it ain't selfish. There's only one kind. There's only one type of grape. So when we look at the letters of uh, the canon of Scripture, the New Testament, we see, as Paul, as they all write, there's problems in every church pretty much. Right? The, only, the only epistle that doesn't list any problems is Ephesians. And we think that's true because it's such a, it was a circular letter. It was meant to be given to everybody. But 
Colossians, who is a sister letter to Ephesians, in chapter 2 has this issue that must have happened in Colossae that Gnosticism had, or an early form of Gnosticism, which was the worship of angels and all of this nonsense, had actually taken hold there. And so there was an issue of false doctrine. There's an issue in this letter of late believers not doing any work. There's an issue of um, in Corinth, right? As soon as I say Corinth, you know the issue, right? This immorality and this infighting and division in Galatians. They had accepted Judaism and the Mosaic Law again. And, you know, through all of these letters in Hebrews, they had gone back to the, the Christian, Jewish Christians were going back to the temple and getting involved in the worship at the temple. And, oh, problem, 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 problem. All amongst Christians. Christians were doing it. And the fact that we can see this, I mean, God who inspired the New Testament has put all these books together in their different issues to show us all the issues and to say, look, believer, my child, my saint, when you see these issues rise up in your own soul, be careful. When you see these issues rise up in your church, be careful. Admonish. If you see these issues in people, admonish, which means to warn and also, do not keep company with. And Paul's going to say, because, so that they'll be shamed for the purpose that they'll wake up to their error. The whole point of it, for those who need it, is that they would recover. And so, in actuality, it's, a, it's an act of love. I mean, who in the church, we're, we're going to do this maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, but who wants to do church discipline? Do you really feel, I mean, if you like to do it, you're probably the wrong person. I would say definitely you're the wrong person to do it. Who wants to call somebody aside and say, hey, brother, look, you're, you're not doing what you're supposed to do or what you're doing is wrong. I don't want to do that. Nobody wants to do that. But yet we're not just here, but we're told to do it. And it's usually not done. Unfortunately, I haven't had to do it hardly at all. Actually, in many cases, I should have been the recipient of that. <laughs> and but anyway, uh, God, God heals in many ways. So um, it, the the uh, the biggest problem I think for us here, uh, meaning in the American church. When I say here, believe me, I'm teaching this passage. I'm not teaching this church, even though I'm doing that, but I'm teaching the passage. It's not up to me to say, all right, who does this apply to? And you know, I don't do that. Believe me, I don't do that. But when, a, when we get to a passage that says admonish the unruly, it's got to be, you know, you've got to teach it. Uh, so, yeah, right? I thought of the thinker, very famous car, uh, sculpture. And uh, you know, it's this. I, I think in America the greatest problem is apathy in all American churches, because you don't have to do anything. The church will still be there when you when you come back Sunday. In fact, you might be a little miffed if your favorite parking spot has been filled or something. I don't know, but uh, it is. It's apathy. It's a question of whether we should work hard or not. If it's not vital, and that's what happens. It's not vital. It's not. I mean, is it vital that, you know, people, everybody do what they're called to do? 
Obviously not, because that's never happened. But, you know, if the church is going to still survive, if we all put in a limited amount of work, why should we do more? And that's the point. Why should we do more? It's easy in an American church to make church its function within. its Now, the church has two roles. We're to have a witness to the world, and we're also to build each other up here, meaning through the teaching and through the fellowship and admonishing, whatever we need to do, that we're building up its people. We're witnessing out to the world the gospel. <clears throat> there's the building, there's the people, there's the children. There are responsibility. In our church, we have child (laughs) so far but um, you know it's all of that is the function that God has put before all believers in whatever church they go to and that church and its people and its function and its building and its children could become low in their priority list after career family money personal time hobbies whatever And then there's time for church. And look, it's still there. The church finds its place. Is the life of the apostle, who gives his life for the church, just for the apostle? And that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, I'm not to travel all around Macedonia and Rome and Jerusalem and get stranded in the Mediterranean four times. I can't believe Paul got on a ship a fourth time. The fourth time he was forced to get on a ship because he was arrested. So he probably got on the ship and was like, oh boy, here we go again. All you guys better better get ready because we're going down. Um, You know, is it only for the apostle? It's a good question. But the answer to that question is by skipping over the apostle and going to the Lord, because all of us will be like him. And when we're all like him, go to John 4, 34. Then this answers for us. And it's wonderful. Now, what's so wonderful about the Word of God is that the Word of God speaks And the Holy Spirit within you speaks, and you get to determine in complete privacy between you and your Lord how much this applies to you. If something needs to change, will it change? It's all between you and Him. God gives you complete privacy. And it's wonderful. Oh, I, I know I, I don't want to use myself as an example, but I'm the only one I really know that, you know, in years past I, I wasn't doing this, and yeah, somebody could have admonished me. Not really, no, nobody really did. I deserved it, absolutely. But yeah, you know, God, God did it in His own way. And regardless, you know, regardless, if you're, if you're going to bypass stuff that's in the Word of God that calls you to this calling, 
if you're alive and you still you still have time, I personally I would say you know you want to go don't you want to go back in time and grab the younger Joe and just slap him around and say wake the hell up, but you know I can't do that. I'm sure all of us to some extent want to do that, um, but you don't want to wait too long on this either. Now for all of eternity, whatever is going to matter that happened here is the work we did for our Father. That's all that we're taking with us. The only other earthly thing that's going to be up in heaven besides our good works is the scars on the Lord. His good work for all of eternity will be displayed upon Him and His body. But for us, we're going to be, we're going to take these works with us. Because they glorify God, they're eternal. And God's not going to care about our career or our our house or our our vacations or our free time or and he's not he's not going to be concerned about that at all. He's not. Now again, I have to say that you could if someone were to say, uh, I think God would easily correct you, but if say, so, you know, I'm just going to do all God's work, and you burn yourself out. Right? You'll, find, you'll find your way. I think it, it's better to err on that side than it is to err on the other. But that's it's my personal opinion. Anyway, let's just get to the Lord and I'll be quiet. The question for us is not how much is needed to survive, but what has the Father given us to do? Look at John 4.34. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This was after he talked to the Samaritan woman and the disciples came back from the town in Samaria. You should eat. You haven't eaten all day. And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It was more necessary to the Lord to do the Father's work than it was for him to eat. So, you know, and God's not telling us to skip meals so that we can do his work. But at times, sure, that would be necessary. But it's a matter of priority. It's a matter of priority. It's more important than my sustenance to do the work of the Father. Hence, if I get to do the work of the Father and I don't get to eat, I'm fulfilled. Yeah. That's he who, it is he who seeks and thirsts, hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Go to John 5.19. John 5.19 Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does these things, the Son also does in like manner. And they're getting on Him for working on the Sabbath. Not working. It's not like He's out there like, you know, shoveling dirt. Or doing, or raising crops. He's healing people. You know, he's teaching and he's healing. In chapter five, he heals the man, uh, the man who, uh, the, the handicapped man at the pool of Bethesda. And I can do nothing unless I see the Father doing it. And do you, so anyway, take that one. So the first one was, I, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Right. So that's a reference to the Father. 
This is a reference to the Father. I do what the Father tells me to do, basically. And look at John 5, 36. But the testimony, verse 36, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which, a father, which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. My Father is greater than the testimony of John, John the Baptist. <clears throat> sorry, but the testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works of the Father has given me to accomplish, those are the works that I do. I do nothing less, I do nothing more. And so in all three of those cases, 434, 519, 536, it is the Father. The Lord always had the works of the Father. And so when it comes to us, it's not what does the church need. It may, you know, you may look around and say, well, I don't see things look, don't seem to need anything. Maybe it doesn't. But ask yourself, what does the Father want you to do? And, it, and there you find it. And he's not going to confuse us. If you say, well, Father, I'm not getting a clear message on what you want me to do. Maybe he wants you on your knees in prayer. Now go ask him. And again, you don't technically have to be on your knees. I, found it, I find it helpful to be in that position. If you can do it comfortably, great. You, know, you don't have to. It's not a command in the Scripture. But... What does the Father want you to do? And what's beautiful about this is you answer this privately to the Father. And no. Say that, well, I think, I think I know what the Father wants me to do. Know that you're going to be judged for this by Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. So <clears throat> one day it is going to become very clear what the Father wanted you to do. And Jesus is going to make it clear to you. As a perfect judge. That's very helpful to know. And it's wonderful to know. <laughs> Alright, John 17, 1. Last one. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Sorry, I'm not even giving you time to get there. John 17, 1. So we know where we are here. It's very, we're pretty sure, almost confident I am, that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just hours before he's going to die. It's often called his priestly prayer, his last recorded prayer. Well, I'd say that's not true. It's last long recorded prayer, I guess. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, which the, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You have sent me to glorify you, and I glorified you by doing what? Accomplishing all the work which you have given me to do. So for us, so in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, I hear, we hear, that there are some among you doing no work at all. 
Well, not no work. They're running around, para ergazomai, working around being busybodies. But they're not doing what we have commanded y'all to do. And so, you know, why is this so out of line first? Because it's so out of line with the life that we've been given. These are not unbelievers. These are believers. He's not here in this paragraph admonishing unbelievers to do God's work. We're made for this. And that's why they're admonished. That's why they're warned by him. And he told the church, you warn them. And then he told the church, don't associate with them. Because they are not being what they've been called to be. What they've been made to be. And so, take care of it. For their benefit. It's easy just to, you know, for anybody who's like that, to, to, because you don't want the conflict. You don't want the confrontation. It's uncomfortable. But if it's more important for you or anyone who does it to admonish someone who's out of line or out of the order that God has given them to be in, then they mean their success in spiritually and in their souls mean more to you than the uncomfortability that might be there. As in, uh, I have it here in Proverbs. Where are you? Oh, it's coming up. But yeah, you know, the the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs it's in the twenty somewhere. That the 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 wounds of a friend are faithful. You know, if a friend it's a friend who wounds you. But the you know, so if if you're gonna just pass it by, you pass it by, it shows a lack of care. So we must seek in the new nature where there is, because God has willed it, and because we have the Holy Spirit within us, that we are workers for God with boundless energy. And each, I say we, I mean you, I mean me, I mean all of us, we've been given a lot of work to do, and it's an abundant crop that will be produced from it. We'll see more this week that it's always for others. Right? It's the Father's work, and it's always for others. And there's so many benefits to this. And I started to list the benefits in my notes. I'm like, well, if you start listing personal benefits, we can become selfish about it and start thinking about the benefits to us and, and, and lose sight of what we're doing here. The benefits will come to you. You don't even have to know what they are. You'll find them. But it's doing the Father's work. And that's a message of admonishment to all of us. Because, I mean, who among us could say, yeah, I do all the Father's work? Certainly, I, uh, I don't. So anyway, there it is. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you and you alone, Father, have given us the truth. And that through that truth, we are warned, admonished, corrected, The Word of God is God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed by you to instruct, to reprove, to admonish, to train us up in righteousness. So, Father, we ask that your Word would speak to each of us and have its impact upon us. That we may see the, the value of the work that you have given us to do, that we may do that work. And that's between us and you. There is no one to judge us. And we know this, Father. Show us not to judge one another, but to look to you for the path of fruit-bearing in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, we'll take our offering. What an awesome solar eclipse yesterday, huh? I noticed it get a little dark, but uh, yeah. <clears throat> For those of you out there on uh, internet, we were it's just clouded over here, so we didn't see it. All right, let's pray for our offering. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. As your priests, we give. We give in honor of you, in worship of you. We thank you, Father, that we can do so. That we um, ask you to guide us in the use of the finances you give us to the promotion of your word and your gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our time. Thank you that you have given us the time to hear your word and that through your word we are, at least today, admonished and we are also encouraged, encouraged to know, Father, that you have given us such wonderful work to do. May we see what we should do and trust you to do it. Give us the energy that we need and the wisdom that we need. And therefore, Father, in our closing moments, we ask... For anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior, we ask, if you are listening, if you haven't believed in Christ as your Savior, please consider who is the Savior of the world. It's not you. You can't save yourself. Nobody can. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God who became flesh, became a man. He's sent to earth. It's not a fairy tale. It's a reality. And the reality is that this man took upon himself the sins of the whole world on the cross right outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Something that is celebrated every Good Friday. He was resurrected again, which is celebrated every Easter. While he hung on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. He was judged for the sins of the world, and therefore he was judged for all your sins. Your sins are paid for by him. Therefore, you can. You have to accept the gift. Believe upon him, and you will have eternal life. He said so himself. Believe upon him, and you will be saved. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for our time, and please bless each of us with the truth that we've learned. In Christ's name, amen.